One of the most interesting questions to explore in the realm of psychedelica is whether or not DMT is an endogenous molecule in the brain. Is it the spirit molecule? Is it something that gives us access to spiritual realms? Or is 5-MeO-DMT, for example, is it the God molecule? Does it give us actual access to God? Well, these questions are now being explored with scientific rigor by people like John Dean, who was at the University of Michigan and is now taking his academic prowess out to Cali, and also John Chavez, the founder of DMT Quest, which put out an amazing documentary with Mahomi Wimhoff. So we have a conversation about all things DMT, where it comes from, what it does. This was a really cool conversation, and I can't wait to share it with y'all. This podcast is brought to you by Onnit and our new product, HydraTech Instant. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey. Buy Native Deodorant. Go to nativedeo.com slash Marcus. And buy Vivo Barefoot. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash amp. So the reason that I wanted to have John Dean and John Chavez on the podcast was this theory that really blew my mind. And that was based on the discovery that John Dean made that showed that endogenous levels of DMT in the cerebral spinal fluid actually rivaled the levels of other major neurotransmitters like serotonin. And so the speculation is that potentially DMT acts in a similar way to all of these other neurotransmitters. It's just harder to measure because it's harder to keep active in the bloodstream. So this opens up a whole spectrum of conversations about the role that DMT plays in the brain and also the role that the endogenous release of DMT, how this happens when you're in an experience like the darkness retreat or when you're in one of these profound Satori moments where the DMT is activated or like an alien abduction experience, assuming that is happening in the brain and there aren't actually aliens beaming you up to a light ship, which frankly, I'm kind of open to both hypotheses, but I tend towards the former one where this is a phenomenon happening in your brain with extra dimensional beings rather than extraterrestrial beings. But that's not what we're talking about in the podcast. We're talking about DMT in all of the different ways and all of the applications. It's extremely interesting and I can't wait to share it with you. But before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors. There are very few things more important than getting properly hydrated. And unfortunately, we're in a world where Gatorade, Powerade, all of these other aids have come with all of these extraordinarily high sugar drinks with very low levels of electrolytes. When you're actually thinking about what a functional amount of magnesium is, for example, and really what used to be you know, the technology that was helping fuel people has now just been something that's fueling their waistline, not necessarily their performance. Now, there is good research that in the right ratio, two to one glucose to fructose, some amount of glycogen replenishment is helpful anytime that you are exerting effort. And so that's really what we went with. The minimum effective amount of glucose to fructose ratio mixed with the best form factors for all of the electrolytes that can really keep you hydrated, whether you're just chilling, hanging out, or whether you're going through one of those hard workouts where you're going to want to replenish your glycogen through the workout. Hydrotech also, man, this shit tastes so good. It's ridiculous. I mean, we have a lot of good tasting products, but this one is on another level. They have some amazing flavors. 
It's got, again, all the electrolytes, sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and it's just a great way to hydrate. They're in convenient stick packets, so you can put them right in your bottles of water whenever you're working out or whenever you're sweating or whenever you just want to be more hydrated. This is a great option. So check it out, Hydratech Instant available at Onnit. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on Hydrotech Instant. Next up is native deodorant. Now, if you've been paying attention, there's a lot of discussions going on about vaccines right now, and that makes sense. And one of the discussion threads is around aluminum. Now, aluminum is used as an adjuvant in a lot of vaccines because it's very toxic to the immune system. It creates a strong immune response and that's one of the things that many vaccines use. Now, it's not in the vaccine that everybody's talking about right now, but it is in many of the vaccines. So when you start to pay attention to the toxicity of things like aluminum, you realize that you want to get this shit out of your body. Great to put in a can, and the, any piece that breaks off your can is going to be big enough that it's not micronized, so it's not going to absorb into your bloodstream the same way and cross the blood-brain barrier. But when you have tiny, tiny micronized pieces of aluminum like are found in deodorants, that's going to go right through your skin and into your bloodstream, which is absolutely why you got to pay attention to the products you put on your body as well as in your body. And Native Deodorant, they got that covered. The products are made with impeccable ingredients. They smell awesome. And I really just encourage you guys to check it out. This is the solution for natural deodorant. So... Go to nativedeo.com slash Marcus or use the promo code Marcus at checkout and get 20% off your first order. So nativedeo.com slash Marcus and enjoy the most badass deodorant I have ever found. Our next sponsor is Vivo Barefoot. And I'm going to take a little time telling this story because I started my journey wearing shoes, wearing basketball shoes. And basketball shoes are designed for performance on a basketball court. And then, of course, there's a lot of kicks that kind of resemble basketball shoes or actually were basketball shoes at some point, but now are way too uncomfortable to actually wear as basketball shoes. So that's what I spend most of my life wearing, either basketball shoes or some type of cross trainer or some type of shoe that resembles a basketball shoe or resembles a cross trainer, just is way more stylish. And that's my whole life. Well, the thing about all of those shoes is it compresses your toe box. So if you actually look at my feet, I have my big toe and my pinky toe pointing together like they're making a teepee. And if you just extended the lines, I'd have a little hat on the top of my feet pointing together. And that's from all of the shoes that I've worn because the toe box is compressed. Now, that gives me toe pain and that gives me toe problems. And I started to notice that. So I started looking around when I was writing the book Own the Day. What are ways that we can get better shoes that actually have a much more open toe box vivo barefoot stood out my boy primal swolger at on it he was always rocking them and they looked great and so i got myself a pair i got myself a pair of the boots and i got myself a pair of the flats and literally i've never worn any other shoe more those little gray boots that i have from vivo barefoot i mean i'm wearing those things probably 60 percent of the time it's just they're so comfortable i can wear them with socks without socks and I just know that I'm actually giving my feet some love. So this is an extremely important thing to think about if you're an athlete and you want the longevity of your feet to be able to perform, or if you just want comfort and style, because these shoes are sexy. So check it out. Go to vivobarefoot.com, V-I-V-O, barefoot, 
com slash amp and you'll get a hundred day free trial and 20 percent discount code the shoes are dope and you're going to be doing your feet and your whole body a big service and now an uninterrupted podcast with john dean and john chavez john and john <laughs> what's up guys this has been an illuminating conversations we've been getting ready for this podcast so we're just going to dive right in but for people listening uh since you're both named john why don't uh, you just give a brief intro of yourself so people can hear your voice and associate that voice with who the fuck you are? Yeah, yeah. Howdy. So I am John One, I guess. We, we can assign <laughs> John One. We can Kenobi. assign variables like scientists. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm John One. And uh, yeah, so uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, so I'm a dude from Ohio and then uh, did my undergrad in chemistry there. And uh, then. Uh, played in a band for a while, and then actually finished the undergrad in chemistry, and then uh, shot over to the University of Michigan to do my master's and my PhD in physiology, and now uh, I'm a postdoc, uh, which means I'm in like grade 27 or something like that, <laughs> out at uh, UCSD, where I'm studying uh, mindfulness meditation and psychedelics uh, for chronic pain and promotion of empathy and compassion. Beautiful. And John one is named John Dean for anybody who wants to mix the correlation. <laughs> and you want to add his I'm last already name. confusing people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm John number two, John Chavez, founder of DMT Quest, a nonprofit dedicated to uh, publicizing the, the results of all endogenous DMT research as well as uh, fundraising for the cause because it's an underfunded field and I feel it's one of the most important fields to study. So the reason you guys are both here is because I got forwarded the documentary DMT Quest from Wim Hof, who's featured in the DM, in DMT Quest, and he was like, "You guys, you got to check this out. It's right up your alley," and it absolutely was right up my alley. And um, what was really interesting immediately to me, there was a lot of interesting, you know, things presented in the documentary. But what was immediately interesting is that I somehow managed to miss the significance of the study that you published in 2019 that was showing endogenous activity of DMT in the brain. And this is something that's been highly contested and debated and is still somewhat contested and debated in certain levels, but you actually showed something at significant enough levels where at least the baseline question is there DMT endogenously produced in the mammalian brain? That has unequivocally been answered. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was the uh, that was the goal of the study. I mean, so uh, it all it all started in like 2013, um, where Jimo Borgigan, who was the senior author on that paper at the University of Michigan, she was collaborating with uh, a gentleman named Steve Barker, who's an analytical chemist, and then and also Rick Strassman, who has been involved in the DMT research field and really blowing the door off of psychedelic research again in the 90s to where we are today. Uh, so they collaborated on a paper. I guess the, the big thing that was contested prior to that study and then our 2019 study was it, it's been known for decades that there's trace amounts of DMT in mammalian bodily fluids like urine, blood, even cerebral spinal fluid. They found it in certain studies. Um, but a lot of those techniques were a little bit older analytical methods. Um, and so what we kind of set out to do was look directly in the brain um, in rats. And that 2013 study found DMT in the living rat brain. So the way that 
you do that is you can actually like probe the brain non-invasively. So the rats are fine and they're just moving around like they normally would. And you're sampling uh, the fluid from the brain and then you can look for any, really any compound you want to that you can detect molecularly with the analytical chemistry techniques. And what we found was in the 2013 study, what, what Gimo and, and Rick and Steve found was that there was DMT in the living pineal gland for the very first time. So that was exciting enough that GMO uh, started to follow that up. And when I came on board, um, we just asked a, a simple question. Uh, one is DMT, so can we quantify it? Can we look at the levels and compare it to known neurotransmitters that are uh, established in those brain areas? And so we looked at a comparison between DMT and serotonin, which serotonin is one of the major neurotransmitters that is established to have a role in mood and several, several other things, uh, several other... Potentially hundreds of different functions in the brain. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the real strength of that study was we found DMT in concentrations that were comparable to serotonin, so about half of serotonin in the rat visual cortex. And then uh, one of the other things we did was looked at rats that uh, we, we didn't sample from the pineal gland anymore, but the area surrounding the pineal gland, because that was like a controversy too. Can the pineal gland really produce this much DMT, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what we found was when we sampled from the visual cortex alone, we still saw DMT, suggesting that although it looks like the pineal gland's producing DMT, it's not necessary for DMT production. Um, and then there were some other things we could talk about, but that's the the main finding in the paper. What was the reason that you, because normally DMT is not considered a neurotransmitter, and I guess we should take a you know take one back step and describe for people what DMT is. But you were starting to compare it to a neurotransmitter with somewhat of a hypothesis, which is something that's presented in the film that DMT acts similar to a neurotransmitter, potentially to the point where it could qualify as a neurotransmitter. But this is this is revolutionary thinking here, right? This isn't what DMT was thought to be earlier than that, right? So first, let's take a quick back step and describe, you know, what is DMT? What did people used to think it, it was? And then what did you guys, you know, ultimately think of as an alternate hypothesis for what DMT is and how it's acting in the brain. Sure. Uh, so we could take it way back to like the 50s, uh, <laughs> honestly, because psychopharmacology, the whole field is kind of really founded on the idea that psychedelics, like classical psychedelics, like LSD, modulate the serotonin system in large part because their chemical structure is similar to serotonin. So fitting in these 5-HT2 receptors, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that really, that connection kind of blew the door off of what we know as modern pharmacology. Um, and the fact that DMT is very similar in, in chemical structure to serotonin was always very intriguing. But I think the main studies that it, it was much harder to find a trace on DMT in, in bodily fluids. Um, so that's why by us looking directly in the brain, uh, there was no like metabolic breakdown process. Like we were sampling right from the source of where we had anticipated to see DMT based on the gene activity that the, the genes that are known to synthesize DMT in the brain or in the body, I should say, because we found them in the brain together for the first time in that study in the rats. Um, so placing the gene activity with the... Uh, concentrations of DMT that were comparable to serotonin. 
I think that kind of like took us to where we are with it today, but we still haven't really shown yet. And I know that they're working on that at the University of Michigan. Um, it's because like I said, I'm out at UCSD now, but so just finding it in those levels doesn't necessitate that it's a neurotransmitter per se. So they're doing some studies uh, looking at things But it like, opens the door that it could be. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. It opens because the amount, so basically the amount that you were able to show, what makes it so that it's no longer this artifact that's in trace amounts that's negligible but it's in significant enough amounts that it may play a role of significant equivalence to a neurotransmitter like acetylcholine or serotonin or Correct. GABA or one of these other things exactly what do you john think because you're not bound by the rigors of academia to god man <laughs> <laughs> to, to speak very carefully about these things what do you what do you think this is showing about what DMT actually is doing. And John feel John Juan, feel free to jump into. I mean, it's pretty clear reality is a hallucination, right? I mean, <laughs> if we had psilocybin or LSD floating around in our brains at you know similar concentrations of DMT, you would say that somebody was probably tripping. So, I mean, the fact that we're producing DMT at similar levels of serotonin, that leads me to believe that, you know, maybe the reality is somewhat of a, uh, a simulation to a certain extent, right? Like, I think that reality is a little bit more malleable. I think the fact that DMT is produced, you know, the interesting thing is that you guys cite the rat aspect of the study, but you guys also looked at in vitro slices of human brains, right? To look at the machinery, the enzymes, to show that the human actually have the enzymes to produce DMT throughout the brain as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because I think that that's one of the criticisms of the study was that uh, it was only a rat study, but it actually wasn't just a rat study. It was actually partially human brain sampling as well. So I think that needs to be cited pretty clearly for the public to understand that it wasn't just a rat study. This does translate to humans, and it seems as though DMT plays a key role in just modulating our everyday waking reality. And if since we're producing a hallucinogen, I mean, I think it's a, a natural kind of conversation to really question... Uh, how malleable this reality is and you know just some of the experiences that we have uh you know it's 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 a tricky conversation i think you know dmt has largely been correlated with near-death experiences dream states but you know the the study that they came out with kind of just changes the whole conversation altogether that this whole thing is pretty much a, a hallucinatory experience at certain extent. Well, and hallucinatory is a loaded word being that hallucination may mean it's not real, right? But this it actually could be, everything could be real, you know? And that's the that's the interesting part is like this could actually be building reality. Either everything's real or nothing's real, right? Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting just kind of note to make. And ultimately through my own spiritual exploration, when I hear simulation, a lot of times people talk about, oh, some advanced civilization put some kind of computer program together and we're living in this computer program. That's not in my reality sphere and my timeline of what the possibility is. But the simulation to me is that we are a perspective in the mind of God, right? Like this is all the mind of God and we're just a perspective. So the simulation is that this is mind. Everything is mind of capital. Everything is capital M mind. And so to think that like our mind is just a perspective on the capital M mind. So how we're navigating this mind, okay, you can call that a simulation. And so for me, that's that's personally, 
my way of understanding this simulation theory is not that oh there's some you know people looking at our you know little computer program and and chuckling as they you know yeah sip on them our excretion fluids and the matrix or whatever the fuck is going on yeah but like that this is actually built into the construct of the universe itself as participatory perspectives in this universal capital m mind yeah and it's interesting i guess in terms of some of the concepts of that we believe are based on upregulating dmt does that allow us to tap into the mind of god or connect with god in a certain way or connect with like supernormal abilities like you know my man wim hoff your friend as well uh, you know these are the things that i'm really interested in not just you know the the basics but also the outliers the stuff that is really going to move the needle in terms of society changing in the future and really tapping into the human potential yeah what the dmt has for anybody who's experienced it ayahuasca mimosa um there's a variety of different ways yahe there's uh or no what's the what's the is that the one that you snuff is the one that you snuff yopo yeah yopo yopo mm -hmm. yahe is another word for ayahuasca um but whatever there's a variety of ways that you can get nndmt in and anybody who's experienced it in any one of these ways ayahuasca and smoking dmt is probably the most common it's a really unique experience in the pantheon of psychedelics it's doing something that's different so from just a materialist reductionist standpoint what is happening when you actually take exogenous dmt that's different from when you take psilocybin or when you take you know lsd or something like that yeah that's the million dollar question for sure <laughs> from the science perspective anyways yeah it's uh right it's like how can how can something that more or less binds the same main receptor 5-HT2A to have these effects. Um, yeah, I think we're sort of in a facile stage of understanding that, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it, yeah, I mean, so to kind of go in with the conversation that y'all were just having, to me, one of the really interesting things about endogenous DMT and one of the potential roles for it is in visual perception. Mm -hmm. So in that study, uh, we found a high gene activity in the neurons in the visual cortex of the rats for the biosynthetic DMT enzymes. And we also found DMT in those areas comparable to serotonin. Um, and you said in the eye genes? So in the, in the visual cortex, in the okay. neurons of the rat visual cortex is where right. we were mainly looking in that study. And we basically found uh, a very strong presence of endogenous DMT in that brain area. Uh, since exogenous DMT is such uh, a very powerful visual, at least NN, experience, uh, to me, there's some overlap that would be very interesting to pursue from the basic science standpoint of maybe endogenous DMT is playing some sort of role in just mediating visual processing in the brain. So I think that's a really cool like foundational question to start probing and in terms of so this is a little more speculative but we're starting to sort of nip at this and i know at you mish this is happening and um, i'm pushing forward at ucsd too is looking at what what psychedelics may do to the endogenous dmt system mm -hmm. uh, so is it that when you take something like psilocybin is it maybe having an effect on the DMT that's being naturally produced in your body in some way, shape, or form? Mm. And is maybe that a, a point of convergence for all psychedelics that you Whoa. take, right? That, that would be really interesting because then what you're saying is, you know, if I could sum and make sure that I'm saying this correctly, but if DMT is involved in modulating what we're able to see 
and psychedelics are creating these you know visionary experiences perhaps they're all tying in to the dmt mechanism which is allowing us access to these non-ordinary visionary states that very well could be and again we, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we mic'd up um just the idea that it's not that far-fetched if you think about endogenous systems that are already in place that have mind-altering properties to them uh you look at endogenous opioids right there's a reason that when you take a pill that is uh, designed for pain relief that it gives you pain relief in the sense that it binds to receptors and it engages the endogenous opioid system. Same thing with cannabis. There's a whole system uh, mediating when someone smokes cannabis or however they take it. You know, when, when you ingest cannabis, there's a whole endogenous cannabinoid system that is interacting with that to produce that effect on not only consciousness, but the physiological effects as well. Uh, so it's not in my mind that far-fetched to think that maybe endogenous DMT could be playing some sort of mediating role. And maybe not even just with psychedelics, but things that are similar like SSRIs, et cetera. So I think that's from a scientific perspective is where it gets interesting and more fundable when you think about what now psychedelics are really becoming mainstay, right? I mean, they're being publicly traded now, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you are, are asking the question of like, how can we better understand uh, mental states or aberrant mental states or or people's emotional dysfunction, or if you, I hate that word, but you, you get my point. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, so looking at that potential possibility for endogenous DMT, I think is, is an interesting way to go. It's, you know, this is something that Wim Hof says all the time, like we are our own endogenous pharmacy. You know, like we're able to produce all of these different things. You wanna produce opioids, you wanna produce cannabinoids, you wanna produce DMT, you wanna produce any of these things. There's methods. He recommends the breathwork, which was actually shown to actually modulate DMT, at least in particular, and probably all of these things, right? Like the the Wim Hof method has shown a little the bit inadvertently to do that. in the sense where we tied in, you know, basically the studies that I've looked at in terms of EEG and ayahuasca and DMT and 5-MeO DMT. There's it seems to be a pretty consistent signature of a alpha suppression and a and a gamma spike, and we we saw that with the Wim Hof, at least that one pilot and. Currently, we're actually doing more extensive EEG with Wim Hof, and it seems to be rather consistent that you see a similar signature to to uh, the DMT and ayahuasca study. So it's not a direct uh, DMT, I guess, um, extraction in terms of the Wim Hof method, but it seems correlatory for sure. Yeah, so it's correlating to the different changes that you see from an EEG. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, I think the one thing we got to remember is that in Rick Strassman's study in the early 1990s, uh, he had four different levels of DMT that it, it administered to people. Two of them were sub-psychedelic, meaning that there was no visionary experiences. And at the lowest level, it modulated mood, where people were uh, describing it as heroin, almost like euphoric. Mm just from DMT. So, you know, we have to uh, recognize the fact that, you know, not everything DMT related is going to be so visionary. Some things are a little bit more subtle. And that's where I think the, especially the Wim Hof method correlates with uh, a DMT sort of experience at the lower levels because the euphoric experience is very consistent. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably a little bit more closer to, to what we're looking at. Strassman, yeah. he saw some rapid eye movements in there too. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like, hmm... Yeah, so it's correlation potentially to sleep. Can't we just observe anymore in science? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Must we break it down to the individual photon? Says the scientist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. says the fucking scientist. Well, I mean, it's something that Sadhguru said. I totally disagree with him on his take on psychedelics, but from his perspective, he's like, 
I don't know what everybody wants psychedelics for. I'm high all the fucking time. That's why I'm wearing sunglasses. You know, he was yeah. like, like he's he was quite confident that he could produce whatever state that somebody else was looking for externally. He could produce it internally. You listen to Ram Dass lectures, and he's talking about the same thing that he's activating in meditation that I would act that I would describe in the most intense blast off, you know, DMT experience, either with ayahuasca or mimosa or whatever. So it seems like there's certain outliers who've been able to at least, you know, functionally for themselves create these experiences that mimic what the subjective experience of somebody who's taking a strong psychedelic would be yeah i mean that's been pretty consistent with the the me- if people that are long-term meditators the eeg they basically walk in and they're exuding much higher gamma than the average so i mean it kind of makes sense interesting yeah the the overlap with psychedelics and meditation is it, that's something i'm super interested in too there's not a lot out there on it but at ucsc they're pretty poised to to start integrating meditation into the psilocybin sessions and things like that. I think that's really exciting work. To, yeah, for sure. That could really help a lot of people as we sort of blow the doors off integrating this into the clinic, you know, to really help sure. them get through that experience and come out on the other side much better for it. Yeah. You know, Joe Dispenza's done a lot of EEG work with his top meditators and all of the experiences with entities and beings. And even, you know, he talks about, um, full-on Monroe Institute level paranormal experiences, people being able to read the backside of a chalkboard on the other side of the room, people, you know, all of these things were associated with extraordinarily high gamma. Not like high gamma from what you see in the textbook, but like in the thousands and tens of thousands high gamma, right? Like these extraordinarily high gamma states Mm -hmm. are always correlative to that. And then, you know, I just read, recently read Jamie Wheel's book, Recapture the Rapture. He's talking about the low like slow one hertz delta also a waking delta also being a really interesting unicity experience too and so it seems like basically whatever you're experiencing subjectively is going to be tied to a variety of different things potentially neurochemically neurobiology neurobiologically and then through your brainwave states as well like you're going to be able to track what you're experiencing to some change in the body well, to go back to your earlier comment about what do exogenous psychedelics do, um, the Chris, are you familiar with Chris Timmerman's work from no. Imperial College? Okay, yeah, check his stuff out. It's really, really, really pioneering uh, sort of basic foundational science of understanding what DMT specifically does. That's his main focus. But a study put out, I believe it was in the same year we put out our endo-DMT paper, 2019, and in the same journal, he he showed that uh, exogenous DMT will give you this like theta REM sleep like increase and this like drop in alpha. So there's like a lot of overlap with basically what the visions that people are having on that sort of correlated potentially with something like REM sleep where you also are seeing things mm-hmm. and your brain's actually under the impression that, hey, this is this is real. This is what's happening. Yeah. yeah. This isn't, yeah, this is just different, but it's being perceived the same way i mean it's a little different than dreams i once and please for people feel free to dream analyze this i suppose i was going to tell you not to but anyways i had a dream the other day that i had to go to the bathroom and i had to take a shit and there was nowhere to take a shit and all i had was like a frozen yogurt 
like a soft serve cone type of situation and i had to shit in it <laughs> and i was like and it was too much for the thing so it was going all it was like spilling all over my hand and it was this like moment of like what is going on well how did i get in this situation okay so the reason i'm bringing that up is that's a dream and maybe it's modulated by this but you don't seem to have those dream like those visions on ayahuasca <laughs> at least i haven't yet i don't know maybe my next time i'm I mean, proud of us we made it 45 <laughs> minutes without a fart joke <laughs> we're doing good guys so it it seems like it's like it, it is that but it seems like there's also a way that it's not that you know what i mean like yeah. it, like there's something that's happening in the brain with dreams that can be totally random and sometimes i've had very dreams that were similar i'm not saying that you know i've had encounters in dreams that were very interesting and dreams that i wake up and i'll write them down like holy shit that was very similar to what i could experience on ayahuasca and i actually told that dream recently there's a really potent dream like that not involving shit and like (laughs) but there's other ones that seem just completely random and yeah. that doesn't seem to happen in in a, another in kind of like a, a DMT experience. The science is very correlative, so yeah, duly noted. Um, <laughs> when you when you look at like dream, what what's really known about dream sleep in terms of neurochemistry? And so I mean, I kind of cut my teeth on neurochemistry because there's also like a lot of uh, changes in brain activity and how the brain communicates. Um, but that's kind of the things I'm starting to really get into now, learning like fMRI, et cetera, uh, in my postdoc. But in terms of neurochemistry, like acetylcholine levels are very elevated during REM sleep and also during wake. Um, so there was a really cool study looking at, I think it was, they took like the Earwood vault, if you're familiar with the yeah. Earwood site. They, they just took the vault of a bunch of different psychedelics and compounds and they just sort of data mined it and correlated different words with different compounds. And then they did uh, a cross-examination with NDE and then they created this whole thing looking at like the overlap between which compounds would would be sort of the the highest on the list of so I think it was DMT was like third if I remember correctly like it's like ketamine's up there and then there's DMT and also cannabis was pretty high up there so there's a lot of caveats to that study mm-hmm. but point being is uh, if you think of something like an NDE. I mean, there's again, I'm a firm believer that there's going to be a biological imprint for pretty much anything that you're experiencing. Right. Um, but with the whole like DMT correlating to NDE thing, uh, I think it's a, an NDE is probably neurochemically speaking a much larger picture than just like one compound, right? And that study kind of speaks to that. And there are neurotransmitters that are altered by other psychedelics like ketamine is like more glutamatergic than, than DMT, which is more serotonergic. Etc. And then you get into things like uh, um, salvia. I think that was pretty high up there too. And that's like a whole another thing, mechanistically mm-hmm. speaking. So stay away from salvia. Yeah, I have no <laughs> just, except for that uh, Hamilton Morris thing where they were they were rolling the leaves in water and chewing them and not smoking it. Did you see that one? No. What happened? So it's like there's a traditional uh, salvia preparation where because right now you smoke it and. It comes in little packets, and I remember my, the most hilarious packet I saw was a packet that said "panic." And it just had someone clawing out their face, and I was like, "Why would you buy this?" Like, but thank you for letting you letting us all know yeah. what the intention of this particular compound is. Was panic, but nonetheless, like, who? What fucking sicko wants to do that? And it's like sitting next to the Marlboro. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. I mean? So it's like, the, yeah. like, let's like, well, 
like, let's pay attention to regulation and drug education for sure. Yeah. Do we want the panic today or do we want to go with something a little easier? But uh, but yeah, but this this preparation was rolled leaves and you chew the leaves and mm. you chew the leaves and and I think you either swallow or form like a wad in your mouth. And that seemed like a pretty interesting experience. But, you know, as we know, different things interact differently depending on the preparation. Like 5-MeO, so Bufo, the, the frog, it is a frog toxin that comes from the Bufo alvarius and they actually reclassified that toad recently. But when if you had it just in its raw state like if you just drank it it would be highly toxic but when you smoke it it deactivates the toxins and then you get the 5-meo dmt experience which in my mind is the strongest psychedelic experience in the world bar none doesn't mike, last tyson, mike tyson agrees <laughs> yeah mike tyson does agree um but you know so I, it's it's possible that what the problem is with salvia is just that everybody's doing it wrong yeah, it's possible. It's my that's my it's my theory on salvia. But anyways, I don't know how you get salvia leaves. And definitely, I agree with you. Stay away from panic. <laughs> that's not, that's not the way you want to go. But since I opened the door to five meo DMT, what is the difference between NN DMT and five meo DMT, and what do you know about how it interacts mm. differently? Because subjectively, the experience is pretty dramatically different. Yeah, so I mean, from a receptor, like pharmacology, neurochemical perspective, uh, there are some subtle differences in terms of like affinity at uh, 5-HT2A. So I believe it's a little more potent. So it'll it'll definitely trigger the the whatever the mechanism is uh, downstream a little bit easier. Um, and then just chemically, it's really only a small tweak to the compound. So the five points to like this part of the ring that has this methoxy group on it, which is literally just like some carbon, hydrogen, and an oxygen. Um, so that's, they're very similar, but I, you know, ethanol and methanol are also very similar, right? And I mean, I know what I'm drinking later. Like had a, we, we were at a cool brewery last night though that might've had some uh, tight, methanol man. out there. Yeah. I'm feeling kind of floaty today. <laughs> Let me ask you a question though. This is important because a lot of people describe, I've never done five, I've only heard about it, I'm just being straight up honest, is that the five is less visionary than the regular DMT, but in that Barker study where he gave LSD to rats, and then they did, I think, I don't know if it was cerebral spinal fluid sampling of the rats, and they actually saw a thousand percent increase in endogenous 5-MeO DMT and a 400 percent increase in regular DMT, and LSD is obviously a pretty visionary experience, so do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of Barker's whole hypothesis, I think. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure he came up with that in the 80s, you know, that there's this endo-DMT system that's being... I'm, I'm very interested in that. Um, we just in, well, in I, can speak, of, I can speak to that specifically because I've taken a compound called Vilka with Don Howard. And Vilka is a combination, uh, in his, it was his own mixture of 5-MeO-DMT and NN-DMT simultaneously. And in that mixture, the experience is extraordinarily visual. Extra I mean, like visions, like you're completely immersed in an alternate reality, which can happen in an NN experience or an ayahuasca experience, but not to this level. It was the most extreme visionary experience I've ever had. And I've, I've done it, I don't know, four times or something like that with him. And um, 
the strongest. And Vilka comes from a seed pod that has both, but there's different ways you can mix the seed pod. And he had the old Chavin recipe from a long time ago, and you snort it out of an old Chavin shaman finger bone from 3,000 years. Fucking epic, this whole experience. And you snort, the whole thing is like this whole thing. And he always had this joke, you snort until it feels like a railroad spike went up your nose. Like you just, you have at it. And you go in and have this experience and you're gone in this other world. Now, that said, in I've had many, many 5-MEO journeys and worked with the Siri, the Siri elders and the Siri tribe have kind of initiated me in that practice. I have never, never once had a single visual experience on no matter how heavy the dose, no matter how frequent the dose, no matter how light the dose, on 5-MEO alone. I've not had one. Now, other people have. I'm not, you know, there's certainly cases in which that happens. So it seems to me, my own, you know, N of one, is that for me, 5-MeO is not correlative to any kind of visual modulation at all. It's it's more it's completely somatic. It's like every cell of my body turns into everything in the universe, bursting with the only thing that you could describe as God or capital L love. Yeah. You know, my last experience, that's just what I was yelling over and over again, even though it's my, you know, 40th experience. It was, wow, God, wow. Like that's and it's it's indescribable as anything else and there's no there's no other sights or sounds or colors or anything it's just a complete unicity experience so i would say you know and if i was going to continue and i'll and i'll certainly open this up for you guys to dive in but what it seems to me is if you looked at this from a map of where something is going to land you and land your brain and tune your radio you know and i want to talk about the brain as well in a nine-dimensional reality, which is something proposed by both Matthias De Stefano, who's someone I want to have on the podcast, really interesting for those of you who want to dive in. He has a show on Gaia called Initiations, which mimics what a lot of the South American shamans have talked about almost exactly, which is dif- different realms of the astral that you can gain access to. And there's the realms of the fourth through the fourth through the eighth dimension, which can be very visual and have different encounters with beings that all represent you know something of articulation from the source but then there's the ninth or the first dimension which is different expressions of the unicity of the all of that point in the universe the big bang when you know astrophysicists presume that everything was condensed down to the size of a thumbnail maybe a pinprick maybe a single atom of pure potential energy and light of oneness of absolute oneness and then it blows out into articulation and matter thought and everything happens from there my hypothesis from my own experience would be that 5meo is the bridge to either you know and i think the first and the ninth they all they all kind of meet up it's like a circle where they both go out in that different realm it brings you to that state the unicity state whereas nn typically well potentially it has the power to get you there but typically it's going to land you somewhere in the optimal brain state, the the radio receiver state to access a, you know, typically probably fifth through, you know, because fourth is just time, but like fifth through eighth dimensional access, which is what my hypothesis would be if I accept the premise of the nine dimensional map. And that seems to explain things to me the best that I yeah. can possibly explain it. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious about the role of endogenous 5-MeO. I just happen to think that, you know, 
your study was super groundbreaking, but if we delve into the five MEO aspect, that's going to add even more to that that conversation. You know, just because five MEO is considered like like you said the most powerful psychedelic out there, and if we're producing it at comparable levels to serotonin, that's pretty wild. It would be pretty wild if we found that. It would be. That's why the, the visual stuff is the just finding finding out what's going on, just like at a baseline level with this stuff, is to me the most fundamental question to answer going forward to start tying in some of these much more exciting and speculative but more grander implications of what is reality etc right um but for me like i said the, the just seeing if there's some correlation or some functional role for it in vision and then like nick g uh, nick linos a colleague at the university of michigan has been working on um, just establishing it as a neurotransmitter, because again, just f- finding it in the levels we found, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going. It doesn't have to function as a neurotransmitter. So, can this molecule actually be like packaged into storage vesicles? And is there a mechanism in place for it to be taken up and in, into the neurons and stored there for future release? Like all these things, that like quantify something as a neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. Um, those are sort of the, like the foundational science questions to to go for. But uh, yeah, five meo is. Uh, from my review of all that literature, it, it, there's way less out there on it in terms of like endogenous. Um, some studies have found it for sure, um, but it's I think it's something again to me. All these conversations are important with these indolamines, these compounds that look like DMT uh, that that have exogenous administration will like impact your consciousness or your mental health especially in, in the era where we're starting to administer these compounds to people to try to help them through their rough times. Like understanding how it interacts with the body is going to be really a big piece of that sure. to navigate the, the realm safely. Is it weird to you that we've spent all of these billions and billions of dollars trying to explore outer space, but it's like hard to get a couple hundred thousand or a million bucks to study how the fucking brain works? <laughs> Uh, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, um, I don't get too wrapped up in that stuff. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's a grind for sure, right? But um, I feel like a lot of that just like falls on the scientists to just be able to put something together that's really concrete, that's rational, um, that that definitely has a, a a reach out to public health, which this clearly now is becoming. Or even the conversation that we had earlier about like kids being able to walk into a gas station and get a hold of something that could potentially go very, very wrong for them. And just having an education system in place, I think is huge. Um, so sort of reforming how we interact with the general public as a, as a society with reshaping our relationship to these compounds and making sure that people are educated and like how they use them. I think that's my biggest fear too, like moving into this space and, and starting to work in the realm of like, we're doing a study for phantom limb pain, mm-hmm. so psilocybin for phantom limb pain, because there's been some interesting case studies of uh, the phantom limb pain being pretty much taken care of with a strong dose of psilocybin, coupled with this thing called mirror therapy, where they sort of put a, a mirror sagittal to the limb that's intact. And then when the participant uh, sees a limb where there was not the presence of a limb before, it'll actually alleviate the pain. So we're thinking that combining well, those two things together, um, so the psychedelics have been shown to sort of increase the 
the the way the brain's uh, visual and like sensory motor areas communicate with one another, and that's kind of what the mirror therapy is doing too. It's basically synesthesia. It's really really interesting. I'm wow. excited about that project. Um, but again, I mean, to me, like having having conver- real conversations. Like I hope that that's where we're progressing, especially now that there's hundreds of millions of dollars being dumped into this. Like so, just that it keeps people's mental health proper because like not everybody it's not this isn't going to work for everybody right like psychedelic therapy mm-hmm. um and the people that it does work for you know that it, it may be especially somebody that's naive to it it's going to be a long road ahead right so it's like just making sure that we're not trying to present it as too much of a panacea maybe i diverged a little bit there but <laughs> yeah uh, we all do yeah <laughs> no it's an important message though you know i mean i think it's an important message that can't be can't be overstated as i think with the excitement around it people can just rush out to go have this experience you know you could have heard me describe 5-MeO and be like where do i get it how do i do it and let me smoke as much as i can like don't please don't <laughs> like it's I'm so- not even fucking recommending it you know yeah. like there's some really challenging experience of my my you know dear brother best friend kyle kingsbury you know he's an experienced psychonaut had a five meo journey that was real rough months of months of integration work you know where there's reactivations every time he would go to sleep like you know there's there's you're it's a (laughs) it's an incredibly potent experience and it's uh you know it's it's something to be mindful of And like the big pharma coming in, it's just like, I, I'm not, I mean, every, you know, there's a lot of good people working in every space. So I'm not, I'm, who am I to judge anyone, right? Or anyone's motives. Um, but yeah, you know, you got like Ibogaine Twizzlers and Chonga Gumballs. <laughs> depressed, get yourself I five would sign the fuck MEO up. snow cones. <laughs> Where are they? Because uh, put a little fucking bell on the little <laughs> car that goes around. I will buy one of those. Right away, I have a game, Twizzlers. Let's go. Oh, no. What did I just say? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I do think it is a problem, though, that endogenous DMT and the whole endogenous hallucinatory system, because we actually produce uh, monamine oxidase inhibitors, multiple uh, ones. I think tribulin, penaline, neurocadin, harmon, norharmon. Like, there hasn't been enough money put into study like the endowasca system. And I think that's the question that you're asking earlier mm-hmm. is like, not even a million dollars in the past 20 years has gone into studying this system, you know, endogenously. And I think that's a disgrace to understanding the human experience a little bit better. You know, I, I emailed uh, J.C. Calloway. He had published a hypothesis paper in, I believe, 1988, uh, thinking that DMT and penaline correlated with the dream state. And I asked him, did you ever follow that hypothesis up with a study? And he said there, was, there wasn't any funding and then I speak with Jima Borjigan at University of Michigan, you know, asking her, you know, can we do this study or that study? And she's like, there's not any funding. And this has been going on for decades. So I think. So you're talking about MAOIs. MAOIs, yeah. The body produces MAOIs. Absolutely. Right. And so the endogenous production of MAOIs, which may modulate the available amount of these other compounds, like potentially endogenous DMT, because that's how it works. In the body, like the reason why DMT trips are so short when you smoke it is if you smoke it, it's really short because it floods your body and very quickly MAOI clears it from the system. And the MAO like, clears it from the system. MAO, yeah. yeah. MAO, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So if you have an inhibitor, it inhibits the MAO from clearing it from the system. Yeah. Um, and then in ayahuasca, it's not actually technically an MAOI, but it acts in the same way to make it basically orally available for you know i don't know six eight ten hours yeah 
whatever that is. So this is an interesting way. And, and then if you do something like uh, anawaska, which is Syrian rue and psilocybin, which you're adding an MAOI, so you're suppressing MAO mm-hmm. and then taking it with psilocybin, it has a dramatically different quality to it. I mean, very much, much more like an ayahuasca experience, which is interesting, different, but... I, you've done that before? I've done that before, yeah. Is there a purge effect as well? Yes, but not in the same way. There wasn't a purge through nausea. There was a a heavy sweat purge that mm. that actually needed and a movement purge. Like I was, I had to like, I was yeah. almost like a twitch, not twitching, a shivering basically, but intentionally shivering to the point that I would start sweating and moving, and like I had to get energy and I had to get um, get stuff out of my system. So. You know, if you talk to the ayahuasca shamans, there's many ways to purge. You can purge through breath. You can purge through tears. You can purge through vomit. You can purge through shit. You can purge through yeah. sweat. You can purge through any variety of ways. I think there's a variety of different ways to purge. So was there a purge? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but was it the same as ayahuasca? No, it wasn't. Though the visions, I was in the jungle, which was interesting because I've never done ayahuasca. I mean, I've never done psilocybin and been in the jungle scape. But that's frequent experience on ayahuasca, right? Mm. So it was interesting how it kind of took me to a similar, one of the reasons why potentially it's called ayahuasca. But the point being that, you know, MAOI plus any psychedelic is going to create an interesting, an interesting effect. Yeah. There's an inter- interesting way that this is going to interact. And it's not just with, you know, it's not just with DMT. Yeah. And I've heard you have to be really careful combining, um, monoamine oxidase inhibitors with 5-MeO. I think that's why it's a really interesting conversation endogenously because it would lead me to speculate that you need like very low levels of 5-MeO and maybe you have elevated levels of MAOI that are causing, you know, some of these spiritual experiences or things like that. So hopefully in the future, you know, we could see some studies that really tie it all in where it's not, I mean, big props to you, John, for getting the DMT stuff out. But if we could find a way to kind of, you know, include MAOI and 5-MeO with the DMT and see like the cascade effect, if there's a fluctuation in all these chemicals, It'd give us a better perspective of what's going on. Something big is getting a trace on them in human fluids. Yeah. You know, that's that's been difficult, which the RAT study was a way to circumvent the issue of how rapidly DMT is degraded in the periphery. Right. Um, so having a, a technique where you can get an accurate read on a DMT signal, even if it's not super quantitative in terms of like, it's this amount of DMT and we're sure of it because that stuff kind of fluctuates and you have to, in my opinion, take averages of multiple studies to really kind of see where it sits. Um, and so, and measuring um, measuring MAO is similarly difficult to measuring DMT or just people haven't done um, it? So I'm saying, well, you're measuring, you could you could measure sort of enzymatic activity, yeah, and, and that's not as difficult, but to sort of link it to the experiential portion of things I would be, but I just mean just finding a way to be able to, in the human living brain, I think, is where it's at. That's right. going to be, and that's like one of my long-term career goals is working toward Imaging DMT in the human brain, um, and non-invasive. Yeah, well, yeah, that would, take a, that would take a hell of, <laughs> that would take a hell of a volunteer. That's yeah. a big one, man. That's that's a big real. If if that happens, that's a game changer, John. I hope that happens. Well, to go and to just follow up on this point, though, let's assume that there's a baseline level of all of these compounds in 
endogenously in the brain. So there's a baseline level of DMT, for example. What may be happening in a lot of these different experiences is a modulation of MAO and in some way. And that's actually allowing the relatively stable levels of DMT to actually become more available in the brain and more active in the brain. I mean, this is this is how, you know, we have our flagship products in Nootropic and the Nootropic, the one of the core ingredients in it is Huperzia serrata, which has a compound Huperzine A, B, and C, which is an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. Mm. So acetylcholine esterase is what breaks down acetylcholine in the mm. brain. So by inhibiting the it's you know acetylcholine esterase, you yeah. have a more available acetylcholine in the brain. And that's mm. what we were able to show in our you know, clinical research is creating the effects that alpha brain has, increase in focus and, you know, short-term memory and a variety of different things uh, that we showed with the Boston Center for Memory. But it's the same, it's the same idea, right? Like it's not that we're adding any more new stuff and what we do actually in the formula, but that compound works because it's just stopping the thing that's naturally breaking down what the body's producing anyways. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to look at what might be happening on a day-to-day basis when somebody's having one of these experiences. Maybe the brain's not all of a sudden producing a whole bunch more DMT when you have that abduction experience and you feel like you fucking got lifted up in a spaceship. Maybe something happened to your MAO system. Yeah. And that's what created the surplus of DMT. So yeah. really interesting to study. Like Both of those things could explain the phenomenon that we're trying to target. Yeah, I've I've actually seen some studies where I think stress is uh upregulates DMT, right? Have you seen some studies like that where Well, I mean, you know, our 2019 study was pretty much in the same category, but yeah, more extreme obviously, but yeah, there's a lot out there on that. Yeah, I saw studies that uh our monoamine oxidase inhibitors, our endogenous ones are upregulated during stress as well. So that's what I'm saying, it just needs to be under like one umbrella, one study kind of just pushed out comprehensively cuz right now it's kind of bits and pieces everywhere and we just gotta you know put them all together yeah the endo uh endo dmt potentially being involved in in mood etc just like serotonin uh i think that's another potential role for it especially like some of the studies that have shown microdosing in rats is so rodent models for depression are a little yeah you know it's 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 a little tough to translate that to humans in my opinion but Nonetheless, like depressive behaviors in rats can be overturned with subpsychedelic doses of DMT. DMT which, microdoses. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, well, maybe baseline levels of DMT fluctuating in your brain are involved in certain things like depression or anxiety, et cetera. So I think that's another potentially well, and interesting. If, and then if Wim Hof method is increasing baseline levels to equivalent, you know, low level DMT you know increases this could be why you know people who are practitioners show the benefits to mood from breathwork practice as well right that could be the, one of the mechanisms at play yeah yeah one of the interesting things that um we're kind of setting up for later on this year is actually an alzheimer's study with wim hof method because you know alzheimer's they, they suffer from anxiety and depression and a lack of neurogenesis a lack of neuroplasticity and if you know, Wim Hof method upregulates the endowaska system, there's a possibility that it addresses some of the aspects of Alzheimer's. So I'm really excited for something like that to really present, you know, some of these concepts of DMT in a, in a very functional, grounded way to, to help the population. I think uh, we're going to see some interesting results. Yeah, I read that study 
the the Wim PNAS study the other day. Finally got some time to check that out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me with uh, the link to hypoxia mm-hmm. and and DMT has been shown to be uh, anti-inflammatory and and sort of all that immune stuff kind of goes hand in hand with inflammation, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And Wim Hof method is a controlled hypoxia, right? It's not just like a chronic hypoxia because in Alzheimer's or other neuro neuro degenerative diseases you see chronic hypoxia and just to be clear the Wim Hof method with the, the with the breathing and then the retention is actually like a controlled hypoxia so like the hormetic stress version of hypoxia yeah exactly yeah. it's different that's why we need a way to just get a, a read on it in in the human even if it's not the brain in the plasma or whatever just a, a really reproducible technique and then you can start asking questions like is it involved in depression is you know, is it involved? Like, does the Wim Hof method have something to? Because right now it's just so much scientific speculation, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's why I think it's it's really important to to develop a technique that'll be able to image it reliably in humans, mm-hmm. DMT endogenously. I want to talk about something that we briefly discussed um, before, and this is Aldous, Aldous Huxley's theory, and he talks about this in Doors of Perception, maybe elsewhere as well. Um, that the brain is a reducing valve, that it's basically taking in the available abundance of information. And because of our processing capacity and our necessity to focus on a certain limited amount of things to produce an outcome that is beneficial for the human organism to eat and fuck and do whatever the human organism needs to do, that the brain is actually involved in reducing the available amount of information that is that is out there. And his theory on psychedelics is that psychedelics are opening these Venetian blinds, opening up the blinds to allow more information to come in. And that's actually what we're seeing. So why people think it feels more real is because we're actually getting more data than rather than less data or rather than, um, you know, producing some hallucinogen, for example, that's coming, you know, some in some weird way. What is the what is the you know you were talking about some of the research that you're you're aware of that's kind of in support of this this kind of understanding of the brain. All right. Yeah, I mean it's just these creative folks are ahead of their time, man, cuz like it it is. There's overlap with what's being shown with this, with psychedelic administration in terms of what it does to brain entropy. Um so I don't understand all of that that's not exactly my game but like i get the the basic concept of uh basically you're just creating the the analogy i use with the music background is like if you you have this like old school synthesizer that has the big patch bay on it and if you just start taking it and patching it all over the place just randomly that's kind of what it seems like psychedelics may do to some degree. And then, you know, you hit the button and sometimes depending on how it was patched, it'll give you a weird sound. Sometimes it'll give you a chill sound. Sometimes it'll give you no sound at all. So, but point being is like entropy. So psychedelics definitely are increasing the entropy in the brain. There's a metric that uh, a lot of my colleagues at the University of Michigan, my grad student buds would use um, to, to look at it. And it's basically like the same idea as binarizing uh, or compressing uh, MP3. So like the, the basic like mathematics and physics is that you're taking a, in these studies, they were, we were looking with EEG signals. So you're taking an EEG electrical signal and you're binarizing it. And then you're saying like based on the peaks and the troughs, you assign like a one or a zero. And then you create strings of words out of ones and zeros. 
And then the more unique strings of words after you do a little processing on it corresponds to higher entropy. And what is found is that things like anesthetics or things like disorders of consciousness like coma will decrease that entropy big time. And as you progress like back to waking, so like waking and REM sleep have the, the basically the same amount of entropy. And then psychedelics even kick it up a little bit higher than that. And what is what exactly is entropy as it relates to the brain? Right. So, I mean, it's really just, a, so again, the mathematics, I'm not going to try to get into, but it, it really is just a reflection of, in terms of things like, uh, another metric would be like connectivity, is like brain areas that don't necessarily normally communicate with one another are starting to do that. So it's like breaking down um, these within network areas communicating with one another and sort of opening up like the whole brain for communication, which is kind of philosophically in my mind, that's sort of my interpretation of the reducing valve from Huxley, right? Because like you said, the brain is basically a system that wants to minimize all that so that it can make sense out yeah, of things. compartmentalization, yeah. whereas this is breaking down the walls of the compartments. And so you're seeing a flood of information and communication amongst different aspects of the brain. Right. And then, like I was saying, there's other studies where they'll, it's called pre-pulse inhibition. So they'll give like two generally auditory stimuli to participants. Um, and basically the, the how closely they're presented, like one will mask the other, but when uh, psychedelics are involved, that masking effect goes away. So there's like more information that can get through the system basically. Yeah. I think I, I saw a presentation of maps from Amanda Fielding, and she was talking about the effect of psilocybin in uh, restriction of the default mode network. And I think a lot of this has been shown in a variety of psychedelics. With that understanding, the idea would be that the default mode network is principally involved in the regulation of this information. And when you restrict blood flow to that area, take it, you know, quote, offline, to use a computer term, um, when you take it more relatively offline than the reducing valve capacity, the default mode network, which is involved with the amygdala, involved in fear response, involved in danger assessment and all of these different attributes. When you take that fear response, danger assessment, default mode network, amygdalic processing offline to a certain capacity by restricting blood flow, then the rest of the brain now has the training wheels off. It's like the regulators off the go-kart and it can travel to, you know, farther and receive information from different dimensional realities that are always around us and available. Do you know if there's similarities in terms of the default mode network activity in meditation and psychedelics? Like does it does meditation quiet it down as well? Uh, yeah, so there are some overlaps, yeah. Um, I know that in experienced meditators anyways, um, an older study um, found comparisons with the reductions that like Carhart Harris and colleagues have shown with default mode downregulation. Um, we're starting to look into that as well with our connectivity studies at UCSD, like the DMN involvement in meditation. Like I said, the overlap of of how meditative states and psychedelic states are, the similarity between those two in the brain is, is something that I think is, is really exciting and it looks like we're heading that direction with mm -hmm. those types of studies, so that'll be cool. And the, the interesting challenge too, though, is that... Uh you know, experienced meditators, you know, put that as a subject group. Well, what the fuck does that mean? You know, you sitting there on your cushion thinking about sex or are you like going somewhere 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, it feels like there's a vast discrepancy in in aptitude. Like, an experienced basketball player is not LeBron James. You know what I mean? Like, he's not necessarily going to dunk on you and rain threes. You know, like that's there's a there seems like there's different levels. That's valid. And uh, and so it is it is an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon just because of the seems like different people maybe innately have different access points no matter how much you try and it's not a not a knock on anybody for not trying their hardest or anything like that but it's just human beings are we're, we're interesting we have certain people have innate qualities certain people who've you know grown up from an early age and they see spirits and they see things that are happening in ways that are inexplicable you know i mean one of the I dated a girl in in high school that was like that that was seeing that could see spirits from when she was young. She grew up in a religious house, and so they tried to like exercise it out of her, and eventually she blocked it out. But it was like this was a fundamental thing, and some of these things told her invaluable information about like a robbery that was about to happen, and she you know like all of these like very interesting like inexplicable phenomenon, right? So like that person is a it's a human subject, you know, but the the fact that humans are just so different it's that's another challenge that uh you know fortunately there's people like you out there to to help figure that out but with studying humans that becomes the difficulty because a human being is not reduced in to equivalency to another human being when it comes to these extrasensory capabilities well what i'll say in terms of how how do you define like experience versus inexperience one of the things that really blew my mind when I started to research this for my postdoc meditation, because I didn't have any experience with with looking at the brain in meditative states until like six months ago, really, um, but was that we look at it in, in chronic pain. Um, so basically, uh, well, now we're looking at it in chronic pain, but prior to that, there were studies where in healthy subjects, healthy individuals, they would come in and they would get like a heat stimulus on their calf. And after only like four training sessions of like a mindfulness-based meditation training, so across like four weeks, these completely naive people were able to use meditation to significantly reduce pain. Um, so now we're kind of following that up and also looking at like more long-term to see if there's like a dosage effect. So if you have like weeks and weeks and weeks of training, if you'll get better at that. Mm. Um, and then one of the other things I thought was pretty cool is when you look at the neural correlates of, of, of people that are really like hardcore practitioners um, that are basically devoted to meditation and, and um, you know, that are maybe in, in monasteries, et cetera, practicing it. When in the in the participants in these studies that we've had, what you find is you find this activation of these like frontal executive brain areas, and you find a deactivation of something like thalamus, which is like the sensory area, which is basically suggesting like that your cognitive ability to sort of turn off this mm -hmm. sensory experience is maybe leading to this pain reduction. But in these really experienced, dedicated practitioners and, and people uh, meditating, you see the opposite of that. You see this executive downshift and you see like the sensory upshift in thalamus suggesting that they're just sitting there with their sensory experience. So it's pretty cool. Like there's, yeah, there's yeah. some, there's some, some changes. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard of any of those uh, studies studying people with uh, like personality, multiple personalities and then different personalities have different sort of allergies and things like that? No. Yeah. Dispenza talks about that a lot. Okay. 
Yeah, there's one in particular that's a, it's a published published case study of there's an individual, I believe he had 13 different uh, personalities. And one of his personalities in particular was horribly allergic to orange juice. But there was another one of his personalities that loved orange juice. So it would put him in this dilemma. Whereas if the other, if the personality that loved orange juice was drinking the orange juice, he was fine. But if the personality, if he switched into the other personality while he was drinking orange juice, aware of the fact that he was drinking orange juice, he would break out in hives. That is so wild. <laughs> yeah. And this is, you guys can look it up. It's a, yeah, it's a published case study on this. Jeez. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, this is the fun, this is the foundation of, you know, Joe Dispenza's work saying like, this is what the brain is capable of, you know, and, and all of the different placebo studies, but to understand that when you have just different beliefs and different thoughts, you yeah. can change something that people would think of as, you know, just a biological event. There's allergens that you're sensitive to in your body and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe, and again, maybe we're all just perspectives in the mind of God. And when we shift our perspective and our beliefs and our identity, we can shift all of the matter and material that's there. Yeah. That seems to be, you know, what this might be potentially suggesting as a hypothesis. Yeah. I mentioned a, a cluster of studies on Ben Stewart. I was on Ben Stewart's podcast recently and I cited uh, studies from the 70s in which. Uh, I better get an invite to that fucking podcast. You, you better, man. Um, ben, if you're listening. <laughs> there's actually, <laughs> I think, seven studies uh, in which uh, adult women were placed under hypnosis. So, obviously, an altered state of consciousness, maybe sedation. Some people like have a certain perspective of hypnosis that it's not real, but it's it's real and it's more of like it's similar to meditation, not exactly the I same. I got to have somebody hypnotize me because I'm one of those people that i'm like skeptical of that i just don't know i just don't think it could work on me but that's like my potentially like rampant hubris and well, overconfidence and like my the the stalwart nature of my brain like i think it's probably the opposite because you seem like an intelligent <laughs> person and a sense that hypnosis has actually been at least from from the studies that i've seen there's a correlation between elevated intelligence and hip, hypnotic ability i so. see you trying to honey dick me into changing my <laughs> position here john and it's working carry I'm on saying, listen man well i gotta cite the studies that i, I we're, we're going back to the the mind molding reality and there's actually i think seven studies regarding uh women placed under hypnosis adult women and they were uh, the instructions were to visualize like a, a warm towel on their breasts and to visualize their breasts actually and getting larger. And these studies would take place over twelve weeks. You just hypnotize all men listening to the podcast. Yeah, li listen to up. Visualize this, this the important. same thing. Well, li this is this is extremely important because the implications are are huge. You know, uh, you know oh, no, no pun intended. For Christ, oh, I, didn't, no. I didn't even try to do that. But anyway, so there was a case study in the late sixties that showed that uh, there was actually breast growth from being under hypnosis and visualizing the breasts enlarging, and there was subsequent follow-up studies that that proved this and then the scientists would see you know other variables of would hypnosis alone induce increases in breast size no it correlated with the visualization and it goes along with concepts like rupert sheldrake morphogenetic field in which maybe in altered states our visualizations uh design an imprint and then the body will go ahead and follow that imprint and uh, the the anyway the researchers found that the 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 breast growth actually stayed after months so after 12 weeks of doing the visualization and hypnosis once a week for an hour 
uh, it was almost like a permanent change in the physical body of the, these adult women. I, there was a, a study done in, I think it was France on French subjects. And I, I talk about this in my book, Own the Day. And they had them visualize themselves doing bicep curls. And they visualized themselves doing bicep curls. And then they measured the growth of the bicep muscle. And there was like significant, statistically significant growth. Then they had them visualize lifting even heavier weights with their biceps. And there was even higher growth in their in you know muscle genesis without doing any other activities all other you know factors accounted for and it's really interesting you know uh, that just visualizing themselves lifting weights like that and then visualizing themselves lifting heavier weights had a correlative increase in what was what was capable so you know what is what is possible yeah you know, what right? is reality i mean the implications for health right are extremely profound i who mean who says the patriarchy is all bad <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying right the implications are huge let's say somebody has you know unfortunately pancreatic cancer can they visualize that going away right can you get in an altered state for prolonged periods of time and have a distinct uh, effect on your physiology i think you that, know i'm skeptical of that one skeptical of what yeah, which the one the whole visualizing visualization going away thing listen when you, you were get at, into dangerous territory with that though because you're gonna <laughs> it sounds people, crazy like i know i know obviously i'm gonna visualize my cancer disappearing well it's listen like, it, there are studies showing <laughs> I, that i'm not talking complete i'm not throwing he was very shade. comfortable with visualizing your dick getting bigger <laughs> or your tits growing <laughs> visualizing stop right there no, but remember <laughs> as he as he saunters out of the room with his 17 inch visualized <laughs> visually enhanced cock <laughs> he's like just just hold it right there john when you were at my apartment when I, I had to do that visualization of your hand getting warm right yeah and that did happen I yeah, we do these things incrementally where it's like if you can warm your hand, can you can you make your hand cold? Like how variable is it? And like, you know, there are studies indicating that different temperatures surrounding cancerous cells has an effect on them. So, you know, we're trying to make this as grounded as possible, not trying to go too deep into the woo-woo, but you know, you've interviewed Dispenza. You know, oh, his I've been work. to his summit too, and there's, yeah. you know, you'll you'll hear people who you know testify from their heart or in small groups. I was in small group breakouts, and there's two, three people who had cured, you know, un- incurable level stage four cancer, this or that. And I understand where you're, you know, also where you're coming from as well. Like, this is not something that you know it's it's tricky right like because you don't want to have this just purely positive thinking i'm going to positive think this away and i'm not even going to do anything else and it's just going to be okay because dispenses method is not that it's a very deep and involved and when they talk about it like to actually go there to actually give this a run it's a it's quite a process and uh you know but that said whatever if anybody's listening knows people i encourage you to look at dispenses work and also look at the emergent work on you know what Travis Travis Christopherson's done on ketogenic diets and cancer and there's a lot of different ways to look at how to look at these different you know these different things that are these maladies that are happening and and I think a co- a combination of all of them might be the way like all right ketogenesis plus you know limited targeted chemo plus dispense a method okay what happens if you stack all of these different things and and so that's something that i would just be really curious about and that book from travis christopherson for anybody interested is called tripping over the truth it was actually so powerful i did a book review um 
on aubreymarcus.com slash cancer. So if anybody's interested in that research, please check it out because it's uh, it's extremely potent. And, and I think it is important to know like, all right, let's just open this field up for the full conversation of all of the tools that are possible yeah, from no, metabolic fair. modulation to the, you know, advances in, you know, science and the, those different technologies to the the technologies of the mind i mean i do to be fair i do see it every day now you know with with working with the meditation for pain and people start meditating and their pain goes away or goes down at least and the brain changes so mm-hmm. like mind over matter is a real thing mm-hmm. so. yeah i mean there's been a lot of cases at least you know anecdotes of people taking ayahuasca and having remission and you know my perspective is that it's uh you know you, if you make distinct changes to the brain most likely you're making distinct changes to your central nervous system and your autonomic signaling so i mean it's not that far-fetched to me obviously i'm not a scientist i'm just a random person but i think that you know that's the the foundation of at least the way you can present it to the world in a palatable manner where you're kind of taking the woo a little bit out of it and trying to make it as grounded as possible well, it's like Dennis McKenna says, we are chemicals, right? Yeah. So it's like... And electricity. We're, if we're you are electric. able to modulate a certain chemical process in your body that would have some, or even just like a process like inflammation, et cetera, that would have some grounding in how a pharmaceutical would work to treat a malady, then you know, yeah, you just to me, that, that. that's the logical link. To me, it, go, it goes, I've so... I've been trying to write a book called Master Your Mind, Master Your Life as my follow-up to Own the Day, Own Your Life. And it's been the most difficult thing I've ever done, period, because trying to find the bounds of what is the mind and what is not the mind so that you could try and be the thing that is mastering the other thing, you know, because the subject-object separation of this is mind and this is not mind, it, it was so slippery and impossible that all the maps I built ultimately ended up doubling back on themselves. And I was... I've scrapped 60,000 words more times in this book than anything else. And ultimately what I arrived at is the the way to build the functional map is to build the map as everything is mind, which is some place that I originally started that we are perspective in the universal mind and our mind is connected to all things. Breaking it out, the somatic mind, instead of this mind, body, spirit. Okay, no, no, this is your somatic mind. It has some atoms and it has neurochemicals and it has structures and chemicals and things. Then there's the story mind, the story about our identity, what Freud would call the ego and the story of, you know, the superego or the judge, what I call the coach. That's your story mind. And it creates all the stories and helps us navigate through story. And then there's the source mind. And the source mind is connected to all things through the source from which it came and the field which interconnects all of these different things. So it's just three different wings of the same mind. Instead of mind, body, spirit, it's somatic mind, story mind, source mind. And whether that's true or not, true in quotation or accurate from whatever psychological perspective, it is. it has been the absolute only way that I could explain my own phenomenon or actually try to carve out a map. So I think it is important to, to at least entertain that hypothesis that we're, the mind is so much more than we think it is. And so the ability of the mind to influence matter, of course, it's just a different part of the mind, the ability for these experiences to external things and fields amongst people and, and you know, potentially source energy itself is something you're talking about, 5-MIMEO, to impact all of the other things from story to body, of course, because it's all, it's all mind, you know? Yeah. So it's not like there's these brick walls built up. There's just different compartments that have different rules of modulation and different rules of interaction 
but everything is everything is mind ultimately yeah, yeah. it almost seems like you gotta get it almost seems like you gotta get out really, of your I mind look up in the sky at night right like, yeah yeah that's true i mean it almost seems to me like you have to get out of your mind quote unquote to tap into mind to the power of the mind right because you can't well, just out of a certain section of what you would call the mind and yeah. this is the this is the trap right you have to get out of the story mind that has a story that this is who you are yeah. and this is who you aren't i'm aubrey you're john one you're john two that's a fucking story yeah and if you can get out of that story there's another story that yeah. can be told and within that other story what's possible within that story yeah and that's part of the psychedelic conversation right is getting out of your your basic story right so totally that's the intriguing aspect of it all far this the that's like the super uh spoiler alert for my book which which hopefully will eventually be available in 2022 but uh yes if anybody's interested keep a lookout for that as it as it comes but it's been uh and i think i i wouldn't have had any any chance at this if it wasn't for my own experiences with all of these different compounds you know like people ask me you know who do you think you would have been if without psychedelics i'm like i don't fucking know i get so integral it's been 22 years since my first psychedelic journey my vision quest out in the mountains north of santa fe like who would i have been well that's a fucking impossible question like who would it's like asking who would i have been if i had different parents like i yeah. don't know you know like how are you gonna how are you gonna ask, answer that it's been a fundamental it's been a fundamental guide for me for my whole life and uh just grateful that they exist and now grateful that we're at the precipice of this revolution where the access points and the information and the research is opened up i mean the fact that i just talked to anton bilton and he's able to intravenously inject people with dmt to measure whether there's entities are real or not <laughs> like that wasn't the scientific reality in the late 80s you know well it takes these rogue you know financers to really fund these sort of studies and i think that's the exciting time part of being in this era that you have so much money on the sidelines everybody's looking to put it somewhere interesting and i think everything that we've been talking about thus far from the phantom limb to the entities to even like things like your dark room retreat you know i think all these things need to be funded more and i think there needs to be more media content around them to you know alert people that these things are actually happening and just the narrative changing too about like if you, since everything is illegal at a federal level, like the number of highly intelligent and highly high contrib contributions to society, like doing good things for community, et cetera, like psychedelics, like as promoting empathy and compassion, right? Like that's something we're very interested in at UCSD. And I mean, there is, uh, there's some studies that have, shown clearly that anybody who's you know participated or ingested a, a compound a psychedelic compound knows that it does open you up to the perspective of you are not this individual right there's this like collective community of, mm -hmm. of people and whatever you do impacts other people so like yep. let's just try to be a little more chill with each other yeah exactly. and the fact that we have conversations now that you know people who aren't as afraid to openly discuss their experiences with these substances, um, compounds. I, I always use these science words, man, for these psychedelics is the, is the right word. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me that we're all stuck in the story mind and the story mind is, is very sociopathic. It's you compared to everybody else and you trying to get ahead and 
be better than everybody else in some way. This is the classic aspect of the ego, or what I call the player, you know, the one with the jersey and the stat sheet and all of the thing, trying to maximize contracts and figure it out and dominate as much as you can. And if you can get away with it when the ref's not looking, you fucking get away with it. Why? Because you're trying to fucking win. That's why. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Tito Ortiz, you know, like <laughs> this is the idea. This is the way that, that it is. And if you can get away with uh, shitting on the environment, but there's nobody else to look at you, yeah, fuck it. It's going to increase profits. Like that's the only thing. We're, we're locked in this story mind perspective of this bad story and this very egoic you know concept and when you take these compounds it it actually connects you to both the source mind and the somatic mind so your body starts talking to you like hey man all that stress and all this stuff you've been putting in me not so good like we need to chill on that purge you know have you have different ideas about your consumption patterns and your life patterns and then also to the source mind like wow i don't think i'm actually that different than the sea that i'm plundering or the rainforest that i'm burning or the people that i'm shitting on and you start to it just changes the way and, and kind of rebalances the psyche so that you're not dominant in one aspect and i think that's what needs to happen more than anything else is just breaking us free from this you know unnecessary weighted average of people being in this kind of egocentric story mind totally yeah completely <laughs> completely agree you know one of the interesting things that was brought up to me in a podcast i did last year was that you know some of the people in silicon valley where i'm from you know they don't necessarily go for the breakthrough dose where you know the ego is kind of shattered and then they connect with the you know the greater vision of of the whole world it's like they, they're taking micro doses or low doses and it's actually helped them being a uh, better capitalist. <laughs> and that was kind of an interesting concept that was brought to my attention because I was like, that's kind of scary in the sense of, you know, utilizing psychedelics to enhance your cognitive abilities to actually be a better capitalist. What do you think about that? I think it's kind of scary, <laughs> like you said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything can be used for that. I mean, look at what Moctezuma's priests were doing at the peak when they were sacrificing people at the top of the uh, top of the pyramid right they were high they were high on mushrooms teotinoctyl high on psilocybin mushrooms so that they could pull people's hearts out with their obsidian knife and feed it through the mouth of huitzilopochtli and kick them down the curb of the fucking steps for 10 hours in a row without getting tired because they're on mushrooms right like so don't think that these things are going to make you good mm. you know <laughs> that's yeah. a, it doesn't get as much more bad as that you know what I mean? Like just yeah. on a, just a fucking heart ripping assembly line, like you're set and setting. They just like needed a nice fluffy rug in the, <laughs> at the mountain base. Yeah, for sure, That's for wild. sure. That was the opposite set and setting. Created like methed out Kano from Mortal Kombat, which some people will get that reference because Mortal Kombat movie came out. But I was an old school game player. I knew how to do that fatality. Don't remember anymore. <laughs> Man, you want to speak a little bit about your darkroom experience? I mean, I think that's pretty intriguing, especially in light of the endo DMT. Yeah, so I reached out to you about that and, and was talking to you about that. And and I think this is something, um, you know, I'm working on a documentary about it and we're trying to get some answers because around day three, and this was something that everybody in was describing and telling, talking about. And again, I was skeptical. I'm always skeptical to experience something, which is why I'm skeptical of hypnosis because I haven't experienced it. Not that I don't believe it i just i have to i want to know it yeah. for myself so everybody's saying oh it's like you have this dmt endogenous dmt experience and it's blah 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 i was like yeah 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 i've done a lot of dmt we'll see and then day three i start seeing these pulsing lights coming in i mean you're in absolute pitch dark and these lights start pulsing and you know how there's this kind of 
when that chrysanthemum hits in a DMT journey, there's just there's sometimes like a sound associated with it in in a slight way, like it's like this buzzing of the ears or of, in this weird way. There's like a little bit of that too, so it was a slight auditory, you know, and but more visual than anything, and that's how it came on. And then eventually, it by the next day, it popped me through to a full what I would describe as like the twilight of an ayahuasca journey or the twilight of a DMT journey, not peak. I never reached peak, like the peak concentrations that I would experience in a exogenous DMT mm-hmm. experience. But it stayed for three days. I had visions of my father. I had visions of Buddha. I had visions of different people's souls I could interact with and talk to. I had, I was in constant, a constant immersion with the you know non-physical dimensions. And, and and also when I would eat food, like I would have a, it was a raw vegan was the diet that we're eating. So I'd eat a piece of broccoli and then the broccoli would just sprout into my mind in like full 3D, like crystal clear HD vision, which is the only time I've ever had an experience like that visually was on a boga, interestingly. Like usually they're a little fuzzy. Like I, like I, I could imagine seeing broccoli, but it would, in a normal like psilocybin or DMT journey, the broccoli would be like, I know it's broccoli, but it's not like I can see with perfect crystal clear detail every different sprout and every piece of the stalk. And then, but on that, <laughs> for whatever reason, I could. Um, so it was, it was very like very interesting experience, and obviously very emotional. And yeah. there's a lot of processes that are going on. So. Is that part of? I, I'm pretty understudied on indigenous techniques, and unfortunately, but. Is that part of like some shamanic rituals to have dark retreats as a yeah. big portion? Okay. Yeah, and and different cultures have had it. You know, I think the the Kogi people had you know initiates stay for long periods of their youth in caves mm. before emerging into reality, so that they actually spent their formative years with neuroplasticity at the highest levels. Right, the ability to learn and the ability to understand that was spent under constant elevated levels of endogenous DMT in these experiences. So when they emerged, they were emerged with greater knowledge of the non-physical and non-visual you know, world than they were of the visual world. And that's what made them the medicine keepers. What was your sleep like? I mean, so did you, could you distinguish <laughs> like dreams from waking visions? Yeah. I, uh, did you dream still? <sighs> I can't recall any dreams. So sleep was really good. I think the first night maybe I did. Sleep was really good for night one. Night two, it felt okay. It felt like I got a good amount of sleep. But then once the flashing lights hit on day three, and I had my aura ring on, so I was actually able to measure and see. I think I slept 10 hours the first day, which is great for me. That's like, I'm usually like a six hour kind of guy. Uh, And then like, it was on down to like seven the night two. And then by night three, I was at, four and then trailing down ever since then four three two and i stayed at around two hours of really awful sleep like the scores that i was getting on my aura ring were like 20 you know like mm-hmm. like for anybody who has a ring it's pathetic. did you feel super run down after that or because you're in the dark you still felt okay or? i mean yes you, you it's energetic it was energetically toxic i felt like at a certain point i would have regulated like i would have just had to have slept but i kind of stayed in just long enough that I could, I didn't get over the hump. You know, I think there would have been a hump to get over, but um, it was, and also it's so emotional. I mean, I was like crying and feeling anger come up and all this different 
these different emotions that were going. So it was uh, it was exhausting, but there was something about also that active amount of DMT that was energizing as well. Like there was a there was this it, in some way it was restorative to maybe my mood, maybe to some other different aspects. So it wasn't like I feel like I get one night of three hours of sleep and I'm in way worse shape than I got after four nights there. And I think it probably has to do with, you know, what was happening in my brain. Have you done this multiple times or just the one time? Just one time. Uh But I made a dark room up in my house. (laughs) It's not quite good enough yet though. Cause like this, it's hard. It's a technology to get a room completely dark because you need a complete absolute darkness and light tries to come in everywhere. Yeah. And uh, so I'm trying to get my own house dark room set up but but my unfortunately the person who's working on it is in california so every time something breaks in my (laughs) dark room i have to wait so we're gonna solve that problem though i feel like i have the ingenuity resources to solve the problem and yeah i intend to do another one and and dive back in and see it would be really interesting to to get a grip on on dmt levels throughout that because um how would so how would you even test that you have to do it in plasma for something like that i would think what, is there any other studies uh, like correlated with that? Have you come across anything in terms of prolonged darkness? Uh, so I don't, that's a GMO question. I don't know that literature as much. That, that shit gets confusing really fast. That's circadian research. I've been involved with a little bit of it. Um, but just from like the, from what is in my wheelhouse, the neurochemical stuff, um, the studies are kind of splotchy. And I think there were some in humans and they measured melatonin, um, I believe in urine, but... It could have been blood too, but anyways. And then there were like sheep studies that they were able to, uh, you know, it's a, you could dive in a little more because um, you don't have to worry about a human being in darkness for that long or whatnot. Um, but my interpretation of them was that, so let me back up. So we know that just in a normal night of sleep when you when you are about to go to sleep, like uh, so the the darkness will generally cue, like there's a, a small nuclei, like your hypothalamus, that just has like a couple tens of thousands of neurons in it. And in the absence of the light, it basically triggers like a norepinephrine release uh, onto the pineal. And then the pineal will start to, it'll give you this serotonin spike. And then the precursor for serotonin and melatonin is actually the precursor for DMT too, tryptophan, dietary mm-hmm. tryptophan. Uh, you know, the turkey compound that everyone knows it as. So, so what you're saying is we need a turkey diet <laughs> while we're in the darkness. <laughs> right, hashtag gobble. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in a normal night of sleep, that's what will happen and you'll, and you'll get... gobbling. Yeah, and you'll get... <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the marketing guru. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just, I'm just look at me, right? Uh, so you'll get this spike in serotonin and then it, it goes down. And this was done the same way that we measured uh, for DMT. Uh, a lot of these studies are microdialysis so there's like a probe in, in the in the rat brain and you can actually sample this in real time. And you get these real real consistent peaks for like the serotonin going up and then it comes down and it's pretty much indicative of tryptophan then uh, serotonin going from tryptophan all the way to the melatonin pathway. Um, so in, in the literature that I've seen for the constant darkness, it seems like at the beginning of it, you get this really big increase in melatonin and then it sort of stabilizes. And then there are some studies, I believe, where it's shown that it like steeply drops. Mm-hmm. The latter is more interesting to me if that would pan out to be the case. 
is because it could be indicative of like tryptophan being shunted from a melatonin pathway to a DMT pathway. So the physiology is kind of like there for like the experiential stuff you're describing. Again, so much of this is like speculative at this point from the science perspective, just because we don't even know what the hell DMT is doing like normally. Yeah. But having it be involved in like a circadian rhythm, like these are all like valid hypotheses and and it's scientific speculation. So it would be cool to see some people dive into that. But plasma, I think, is how you would have to do that one, at least if you were doing like a human study. You could just like have a rat that you monitor the the DMT in real time across the whole. We did that sort of, but the study in the 2019 study, it really wasn't designed. Uh, like our sampling rate was like every 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and, and, and REM sleep in a rat is like a minute or two. So you just miss it. Yeah. So we saw those really nice circadian phase curves, like I was saying, but the DMT, when we looked, it was just kind of like spotty all over yeah. the place. It's a, it's an interesting world, you know, and we got to wrap this up, but you know, one of the problems with our world is that it's been oriented towards capitalism, towards money. What's going to make the most money? What drugs are going to make the most money to treat versus, you know, other treatment methods that aren't going to earn enough money that you can't galvanize. Like, you know, that's been a, that's been a challenge. And now that psychedelics are available into the capitalistic sphere, I think we're going to see a flood of science that's going to come out. Of course, the intention is that ultimately the science turns into capitalism, and that's what actually allows the funding to flow through. And so whatever criticism of the mechanism, the mechanism is in favor of a, a rapid increase of research right now because I can I see it happening. I get this, you know, different Imperial College here, Beckley here, this is so-and-so here, here, here. All of these different places are like, yeah, let's, let's research this shit because now – you know, there's some there's some real opportunities that are coming up. So that's I think uh, it's an exciting time, not just for you know human health, mental health, exploration of consciousness, but also uh, for just our understanding and from a scientific perspective about what's going on. Because I think fast forward, you know, two years from legalization, and there's going to be a lot of fucking papers, <laughs> and that's going to be a, that's going to be an exciting time. So I appreciate both of you guys' contribution to uh, to the field and to my understanding and uh, and the world's understanding of what's going on here yeah it's been it's been a great talk thanks for having us man. yeah, yeah right on sure. man yeah look look out for the second episode of dmt quest coming out later this year it's gonna be a good one what's a what's a little what's a little preview what are we gonna what are we gonna see in we're gonna one? build upon the first episode and you know we're gonna delve into dean's vision for his uh, non-invasive uh, measurement of non of endogenous dmt we're gonna be delving into uh, maybe uh, blood plasma technology to measure uh, fluctuations in the blood of humans and dmt so there's a those that's a, like a little snippet of what's going to be going on and obviously we're going to be tying in a lot of details in regards to the importance of the gamma wave and you know functionality within the brain so should be fun beautiful well and for anybody who hasn't seen it check out dmt quest as well is it still on youtube yeah still on youtube still for free no ads so just check it out share it out and let's spread the word yeah beautiful thank you so much guys thanks everybody for tuning in and thanks for the fit for service academy for watching live. Thanks for tuning into the podcast with John Dean and John Chavez. Make sure you check out the documentary DMT Quest and follow DMT Quest for more information. And also it's a nonprofit org. So if you're interested in sponsoring any of the research being done on DMT, check out DMT Quest and offer them some support. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.